There was no evidence that governor, that, that uh, Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around other people's well, elections, too. a number of topics related to rackets, such as drug cartels, mafia families, um, crony capitalism, corruption, all types of news events. And the first story has to do with the Arizona State Prison. By that I'm referring to them banning a book called Chokehold Policing Black Men. It's um, a fairly provocative title, but the, the content is, is in no way really provocative. It's actually written by former federal prosecutor, his name's Paul Butler. Um, he is himself a black man. And it's a really um, very intellectually honest book that touches upon a lot of really controversial um, aspects of the, of the uh, criminal justice system. It isn't entirely focused on the disproportionate way in which black people have uh, felt the wrath of the criminal justice system. But he also does point out some things that might surprise people. Like, for example... Black men are more likely to be shot by a black police officer. At the end of the day, he's just making a very compelling argument that there's a strong inherent bias within the criminal justice system. So again, this is a very reasonable book. It wasn't written by like some sort of um, extremist or something. Nothing, um, nothing inflammatory like uh, the anarchist cookbook that would teach people how to make a bomb or something in prison. And it's just, uh, um, and it was banned in the Arizona State Prison. And again, I think it's just part of an overall arching theme with the prison system that we need a, a much less punitive system, a more humane system. With that said, it's kind of one of the contradictions that I like to point out with my work that I'm not one for abolition of prison, um, but again, I do think it needs to be dramatically reformed. But on the flip side, I do think that there's this um, very, very small percentage of the population that really has absolutely no fear of prison. And that, for the lack of a better term, we should just call the, the social and economic elite. Um, and I think there, there's a story I kind of wanted to point to. Um, it has to do with David and Joss Sackler. They're the heirs to the Sackler family fortune, um, which was built upon, you know, through Purdue Pharma with the advent of the, the drug OxyContin. I don't really need to rehash this in much detail. The marketing of that drug was one of the main drivers of the opioid epidemic. And the Sackler family had been doing this type of aggressive marketing for many years prior. For instance, the drug Valium that was heavily marketed by Sackler as well. Uh, there's just a long, long history there with this sort of profiteering from the Sackler family. Again, I don't need to rehash it in great detail, but that family, again, is responsible for a lot of criminal activity, very high level of criminal activity, but never has actually faced the threat of prison, not in any real sense. But what that family is starting to face is sort of social backlash. Uh, for example, you know, 
they have given a lot of money back for uh, philanthropy, uh, but uh, a lot of universities and museums, etc., they're facing that sort of social pressure and they're no longer accepting their donations. And so this social pressure has affected the family so much that David and Josh Sackler have decided to sell their $6.5 million apartment, which is in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And ironically, they're moving to Palm Beach County, which again was sort of the the beginning stages of the opioid epidemic. They, all this family does is face these sort of social pressures. Like if you look into the family and like what what's happened to them, it, it sort of reads like something from the movie Zoolander. <laughs> what we are starting to see is, like I say, some um, some action by various different groups against Purdue Pharma, that company. Um, and, and it, again, it's coming from some really uh, sketchy characters themselves. For example, J.P. Morgan, and we don't need to rehash their role in the uh, 2008 financial crisis, among a number of other sort of white-collar crimes. Um, but that group has decided to drop them from doing any sort of banking services from them just due to the sort of backlash with their name. But again, it's, we're talking about J.P. Morgan, where essentially they just know that they're immune from prosecution, Elizabeth Warren, in her book, um, once mentioned that basically when she was confronting the CEO, Jamie Donovan, about something, he basically just told her, go ahead, hit me with a fine, we can afford it. Um, again, no fear of any actual criminal prosecution. Also, the uh, really uh, controversial uh, consulting group called McKinsey, I've mentioned them on a prior podcast um, in relation to this sort of crony capitalist um, family, the Guptas from South Africa. How they can essentially sort of, but it's this consulting firm that it's just uh, represented some of the most corrupt foreign countries, such as Saudi Arabia. Um, they were helping them and sort of in the buildup before Khashoggi was murdered. Again, I'm not insinuating in any way wanted that to happen, but they were, you know, really sort of aggressively targeting different critics of the Saudi, and, and particularly MBS, uh, the Saudi regime, um, just with words, uh, nothing, nothing more than that. But, again, this company, it just has this sort of very shady reputation. They were deeply involved with Enron during the scandal. Uh, but finally, at some point, Purdue Pharma has, has become so flammable that McKinsey Consulting doesn't want to have anything to do with them as well. Uh, but, again, you've, you've got this major opioid epidemic that a bunch of U.S. corporations have made a ton of money um, from and have a very complicit role. But at the end of the day, all they do is pay a fine Every other day, you're reading about another um, company that gets gets in trouble. For example, um, a Louisiana-based um, distributor called Morrison Dixon. They just recently um, reached a $22 million settlement. Apparently, there were over 12,000 different orders that they they serviced where there were sort of obvious red flags, and they just looked the other way. In other words, they put profit over ethics. So while we're on the subject of prescription drugs. There was a fairly viral moment that was AOC when she confronted the CEO of Jalid. It's a company that makes up an HIV prevention drug called PrEP. And she was bringing up the point that this drug, I mean, it's a very important drug, costs about $1,700 a month in this country. AOC is a, you know, a pretty polarizing figure. And I, and I hope that people can sort of put aside any sort of feelings about her and just focus on the issue. And I think she brought up a very constructive issue, which is basically the, the crony capitalism of the U.S. health system. So basically, 
the U.S. government um, helped to fund uh, much of the research that was that went into to making this drug. But at the end of the day, the U.S. consumers get very fully inflated prices, whereas a lot of other countries um, can get these really much lower prices. The drug, I think it was something, just a fraction of the price in Australia. Um, and the CEO, basically his counter-argument was that they're just sort of following the rules. Um, in the U.S., you get a longer period where you can keep the drug um, from going to uh, generic status, because um, it is a generic drug there in Australia. But that's actually, I'm sort of building up there for a reason, uh, because I have to point out that there's this major um, lawsuit, and it's um, in the state of uh, Connecticut, with like 43 states combined in this lawsuit. The defendants, are a bunch of these uh, companies that make generic drugs, and you know, just to sort of be concise, essentially the evidence shows that these companies were conspiring together to fix drug prices. Um, they, they basically acted like a cartel or a mafia. Um, but again, these are just major U.S. corporations uh, where they agreed to different market share. In other words, agreeing to, to not compete against each other in order to raise the prices on the drugs that you and I use every day that we need in order to survive and function properly um, so they can max out their prices. But a totally unrelated story, um, it's something that I talked about in the, in the prior episode that was solely focused on El Maya, um, I'm sorry, El Chapo, because um, one of the uh, the top witnesses in that case was the son of El Maya, who now is basically unofficially the the world's uh, most prominent drug trafficker, and nobody really knows who he is. He was sort of like the uh, the co-founder there with the the Sinaloa cartel, uh, but just to kind of review briefly, his son voluntarily turned himself in and became a major witness against El Chapo. So to this day, I mean, I don't, I think very few people know of exactly what the motive was there. I, I myself do wonder if there was like an ulterior motive. Um, Omayo, again, is somebody who sort of lives more in the shadows. Um, but again, Omayo is, is free and seemingly operating with, with no problems. And now his son is in the process of coming home, prosecutors, um, because they cut that deal with him, um, it looks like he'll be going home fairly soon. There's also another aspect of just drug, the drug war in particular with Latin America that I wanted to point to, and it's just sort of the way that the news gets spun and the drug war is used really for these sort of geopolitical purposes. Um, no doubt there's a lot of corruption with the Venezuelan government with drugs. Um, I've pointed this out. A long time, basically called it a narco state. But the thing that bothers me is that the U.S. government gives that country a, a ton of attention. There's a there's laundry list of people who've been sanctioned, but you know, within the, the Venezuelan government by our government. Meanwhile, there's arguably a more flavored narco state in the country of Honduras. Most notably, the, the brother of the current president of the country was actually left off of, recently released a list of Central American government officials who are, you know, suspected of deep ties to the drug trade. Um, and although um, the president's brother is not actually a government official, but he, he's actually uh, facing charges. Long story short, very deeply involved in the trade. Um, there have been a number of just different revelations in which the, the Honduras government was essentially giving different government contracts to, to different traffickers, basically as a source of laundering and drug money 
just the, the ties with the drug trade are, are endless there in Honduras, but you basically see no media coverage of it. Um, it's all almost entirely focused there on Venezuela. Um, again, a lot of that media attention in Venezuela is entirely deserved, um, but it, there just need there needs to be um, a, a more balanced representation with this media coverage. And the main reason is because the government is the driver, and the government, the U.S. government, firmly has the back of the Honduras government. There was a coup back in 2009 that removed a left-wing leader, and ever since there's just been, um, there have been sort of these right-wing leaders that have these horribly corrupt backgrounds. In fact, the son of the prior president is in, in, in prison in the United States on, on drug trafficking charges. Again, just sort of a laundry list of characters um, tied to the drug trade in Honduras. And there's basically no real public outcry from the U.S. government. So while we're on the subject of Venezuela, I want to bring up an op-ed that was recently written by Lindsey Graham in the Wall Street Journal. And since then, he's um, done sort of like a media tour. Uh, but the title was Match Words with Action in Venezuela, Mr. President. And it's basically his call to action. Uh, for, for President Trump to go to war in Venezuela. And for one thing, it just seems that uh, Lindsey Graham doesn't really understand how the Constitution works. Um, if you remember, I had a very good interview with Nathan Smith, who sued the President of the United States about really the, how the war powers actually work in the United States, at least on paper, how they work in the United States. Uh, but no, just as a reminder to Lindsey Graham, uh, Congress has the power to declare a war, not the U.S. president. Um, it, he's somebody who's been very involved in sort of military affairs uh, politically, and he's somebody who should know better. Um, and again, I'm putting aside any of the actual counterproductive or just empirical nature of a demand like that. Uh, but Lindsey Graham used to be a military um, law officer, so he, he should know these types of things. But again, his um, one of his rationales is that we should that, uh, Trump should invade Venezuela just like how Reagan invaded Grenada, um, and it's naive on many levels. For one, Grenada is just this tiny country that basically had no military, and again, he, he's just sort of just unaware of so many things. For example, if you remember, um, there was that sort of controversial moment where Trump was telling the wife of a deceased soldier. You know, well, he, he knew what he he knew what he was doing. He signed up for it, and that had and that involved a, a group of troops who were um, surrounded and killed in Niger. But after the event, Lindsey Graham openly said on um, during an interview that he didn't even know that we had troops in Niger. In other words, we we've got so many troops in so many countries that really one of the one of the foremost leaders on national security in the Senate doesn't even know where they all are, um, and now he wants even more war course. Um, but it, again, the U.S. government just tends to, even if you, you did support that war, which I don't, and I think that the vast majority of Americans don't, despite you know a lot of the really negative news coverage coming out of Venezuela, uh, but there does seem to be some naivete about what extent of a, a military commitment that we would need in order to achieve this, this goal. Um, for example, you probably saw that story with John Bolton on his notepad there where it said 5,000 troops to Colombia's border. That number, I, I do like to point out, again, ties to the drug war, which is 
roughly the number of U.S. troops who were in Latin America who were stationed there specifically for quote-unquote <clears throat> counter-narcotics operations. Um, but again, back to uh, Graham. He uh, recently sent out a tweet that said, Cuba and Russia send troops to prop up Maduro and Venezuela while we talk and we sanction. You know, where is our aircraft carrier? So in other words, yeah, we don't have an aircraft carrier just looming outside of Venezuela. And this, this just seems to be an absolute emergency in Lindsey Graham's eyes. Um, and there's a good reason for that. We don't have them there because we have a long history of insurrecting these different military coups throughout Latin America. It's one of the few aspects of progress in U.S. foreign policy that Lindsey Graham wants to just run roughshod over that type of progress. Um, and, you know, while we're on the, the subject of um, ships, U.S. military ships, I want to point out um, there was a recent report um, from the GAO in which they point out that basically $30 billion worth of waste in the U.S. Navy has to do with uh, these littoral combat ships. And basically over the last 15 years, we've spent that much money and we've gotten about 10 ships out of the deal, of which only really four are in use, two of which are in the Caribbean there, uh, where, again, there's no military threat. They're basically used to try to basically work in the war on drugs, these big, bulky ships that, in no way can actually catch a small speedboat. So, again, just a very useless um, use of our resources. There, there are um, two of those ships that are basically off of the West Coast there. Um, but, it, again, it just sort of points to this, this wasteful military-industrial complex. We have this sort of like World War II style of weaponry that we keep spending ridiculous amounts of money on that just don't really serve us well for really the future of the future style of warfare um for example there have been some stories recently where we're doing these war games just hypothetical situations where if we went to war with china and russia and the results are that we we lose badly we lose really badly even though we spend a ridiculous amount more money as far as our, our military budget yet if we had to go to war with them today we not necessarily lose, but we would we would perform very badly. One of the final topics I wanted to talk about was um, the former CIA director Michael Morrell. He was uh, recently on a sort of an Asian geopolitics focused podcast called Tea Leaves, and he, he had some some very interesting comments, most of which I agree with. Um, and he was talking about Pakistan and uh, India and sort of their rivalry. And this is something I brought up recently. Um, on a prior episode involving how um, there's a bona fide terrorist group in Pakistan called JEM, Jaish A. Mohammed. Uh, they recently committed a number of attacks against India. And uh, basically, what uh, Morel's analysis is, and I think most people who follow the, the region would agree, is that Pakistan gets the label of sort of uh, being a haven for terrorists, but he actually points out that they've essentially invented um, some different terrorist groups, which, in my opinion, is pretty accurate, in particular the group L.E.T. But yeah, they were responsible for the 2008 um, attack in Mumbai. Most of their attacks are sort of in this um, disputed region of the Kashmir. Uh, but again, it was sort of, and it was, it was labeled a terrorist attack, it was a terrorist attack, uh, but at the end of the day, that Mumbai attack was basically a state-sponsored attack. Um, you know, when it when it first came out that they were 
reports that within that group that there were former ISI members, um, the ISI being sort of the uh, Pakistani version of the CIA, that the, really the masterminds of that attack do remain free in Pakistan. And really the whole reason behind their sort of support of extremists in Afghanistan um, has to do with that Pakistan doesn't want any sort of neutral or moderate party there in Afghanistan. They want extremists who will see sort of their side in any sort of potential conflict with India. Morel made a very good point that that just, it's an overdrawn conclusion by Pakistan. India really does seem to be more focused on their economy. But there was one particular quote that I have to mention. He said, what they, and by they he's referring to um, as Pakistani government leaders, don't realize is that it's impossible to keep those terrorist groups under control. That eventually comes back to bite you. Um, and of course, yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense. But then you have to you have to think about it. It's almost like I wish I had the uh, record scratch sound effect of, huh, you don't say. Again, this quote is coming from the former director of the CIA. If you're listening to this podcast, I guarantee you, you are aware of what I'm referring to. And it's all the different type of blowback that has come from the CIA supporting all types of different extremists, rebel groups. I mean, and just in that region, you can point to the, the Mujahideen and a, a host of just different Afghan and Pakistani opium warlords, um, such as Gulbuddin Hikmatyar, the Bakani Network. You can go on endlessly. Their support, I mean, a number of different opium warlords who have actually been on the CIA payroll, and that's just in that one region of the world. It's and I guess where the last story I wanted to point to is another example of blowback, and it's not from the CIA. It has to do with the NSA. Um, they had a tool um, for hacking. It was called Eternal Blue, and it got released a couple years ago, and it's been used against the United States. And currently, the city of Baltimore um, have a group of hackers that have basically shut down their, their website, and they're holding it for ransom, demanding, uh, I forget how much money in Bitcoin. Um, but this has been sort of a continual thing, and it all has to do with this hacking tool from the NSA that got released. Um, if you remember a couple years ago, there were these cyber attacks uh, from, from North Korea. It was called the WannaCry virus. Um, but again, the, 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 um, the source of that it goes back to Eternal Blue from the NSA. Um, a number of other state actors, such as uh, Russia and China, have used this exact same technology to attack U.S. cyber infrastructure, along with the U.K., Germany, a number of countries have, have faced a lot of real um, real damage as a result of this um, tool of the NSA um, being leaked. So I guess that's really sort of the final story for today. I want to thank you for listening. I'm going to have a great guest on the show next week, or at least that's the plan. Stay tuned. Um, thank you for all your support. If you do want to support the podcast, I ask that you, you know, share this on social media in any way that you can. Um, give it a five-star rating on whatever platform you use. And really the best way to support the podcast is to go out there and buy a copy of my three-book series. That's called Rackets. It's on the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. So until next time, thank you much. It's a big club and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to, um, to prosecute.
You can have the license. The price is $250,000, plus a monthly payment of 5% of the gross, of all four hotels in the store. Corleone.